Welcome to A Right Good Tale, a podcast where we explore the good and the bad of storytelling. From films, video games and books, to songs, poetry, music and television, we will talk about all the mediums through which stories are told and how they've impacted the world we live in today. I'm Stuart, and as ever, I'm joined by Alex. Hello. And Steve. Greetings. So come, pull up a seat, get yourself a nice drink and join us for A Right Good Tale. Episode two, episode one. Episode ambiguous. Yeah, the first one was just an introduction. It wasn't actually the first episode. This is now officially the first episode. First one was our Boeing 747, was it not? That's a plane, mate, not a podcast. That's a pilot. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> That's bad. Oh, I'm going to turn off already. I'm done. Finished. Yeah. Done. That's it. You, we peaked. We have officially peaked. Yeah. Like all of the airlines that are no longer with us and all of the travel people that are no longer with us. So this episode is sponsored by airlines and travel companies that are no longer with us thanks to the global pandemic. Let's just take a two second silence. That's I enjoyed enough. that. Yeah, I enjoyed that immensely. Um, that was good fun. Speaking of travel, today I'm drinking Adnams Explorer. Hashtag still not sponsored. I'm drinking Adnams Explorer. That's lovely. Absolutely lovely stuff. It's nothing to do with Christopher Columbus because they might rip your statue down as well, Stu. No, I still haven't got a statue, not even in my hometown, which you uh, think is long becoming, but still. That is, yeah, well, it's your reputation it's the, the preceding of, you, isn't it? It's the sort of town where they've got a statue of a bull, but not of any people. And I don't know if that says more about the town or the fact that the people that come from there aren't worthy of statues. I, it says a lot about a town when they put a statue of, or 10, sorry, different statues of pigs all around the place and wouldn't put up a single one of a man with no hair working in a museum. <laughs> Have they got any statues in Clacton, Steve? I can't remember. Uh, we got the War Memorial one. Oh, yeah, everyone's got oh, one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're 10 a penny. Yeah. Well, they're well earned. Does a wishing well count as a statue in your eyes? I would think so, yeah. More useful. More inspiring. Oh, it's a statue with yeah. purpose, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, no one wishes on a statue, do they? Not anymore. No, no. They're trying to star. I'd like to visit a wishing well. I'd have to look up my local one. Yeah, Think of every wish that hasn't been fulfilled. Hmm. Could this be a segue, I wonder? Do you know what? I wasn't going to make it a segue, but let's make that a segue. <laughs> Talking of unfulfilled wishes, just over a year ago, almost to the day, Game of Thrones, the TV series, finally ended. Of course, we're still waiting for the books to finish, but we had an ending to the saga of Ice, Fire and Jon Snow. And I think it's fair to say, guys, that people were split down the middle, don't you think? Hmm. I'd say split down the three-quarter. If you could be split in a three-quarter, I don't know. I would I'd say I felt hung, drawn and courted by it, and it's like when you go out for the 
most amazing meal in your life with the best beers and then at the end whilst getting the bill you get stabbed in the eye repeatedly by a dragon's tail I don't want to go out with you on a night out that sounds rough more thoughtless Oaken than Clacton that one but there we are we do try we're getting there but um goodness it's a strange one because it has been it has been nearly a year hasn't it Mm. yeah I think just over a year isn't it wasn't it I think it was May 19th last year it aired it's been a, lo- a little bit more than that now, but and it's still a bit of a focal, a focal talking point with people. It is, and I think, obviously, on a right good tell, we don't just jump in dry. We like to do a little bit of research, and I've taken it upon myself to watch a couple of episodes from each season at random to mm-hmm. see what I loved and what I hated. And um, there's ninety-seven percent is absolute adoration, and then the three percent is very, very painful. Mm. Mm. It's it's going to be a fun one, this one. So anyone listening, you're going to have to turn the volume up because I think we're going to have some stuff to say. Let, let's, let's start, I guess, at the beginning because Alex is right. It's always worth remembering at the end of this when no doubt some of our listeners are going to disagree with a lot of what we say. Um, that I think all of us agree that at least initially you're, you're talking one of the best TV series of all time. Um and yeah. certainly the books, the books are up there, you know, the books are up there as some of the best written work ever made. But it's just a shame that, and we're not going to go into the rumours because I don't think any of us want to get sued by a mouse, but we don't want to go into the rumours of, of why it tailed off so badly, I think, especially the last three or four episodes. But let's start logical place, which is in the middle. No, let's start at the beginning. Can I just start at the end very quickly? Because I read a quote today whilst I was scouring the internet. Um, It's talking about the end, but it's not specifically about the end. It's how he thought the end, the amount of time it would have taken had he have had his way. So it took obviously one season to finish the last, however many books George thought it might be, but he said it could have quite comfortably been five more seasons to wrap the show up from where it ended at seven. Damn. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Like when we get into it, I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but I, I tend to like from the books, I tend to like the deep law stuff I'm talking about. Like I really like your Lynn Corbray. I think he's one of the best characters in the books and he just does not appear at all in, in the series and all that deep law stuff, which gets missed over and, and kind of, got rid of because they're trying to tell a focus story and, and the focus story was obviously on the on the tv series it wasn't westeros and its struggles the focus story was the story of ice and fire the story of daenerys and john but let's start at the beginning um when were you guys introduced to game of thrones i mean i didn't read the books actually until the tv series came out i remember oh. the tv series came out and a lot of people raved about this tv series and i thought to myself well i know it's a book series so i'm not going to touch the books sorry i'm not going to touch the tv series until i've read the books so tv series comes out i go and read every single book and then start the tv series so for me i read all the books before i saw a single episode same but i read Um, all the books sort of as they were all as one and then i waited for a long time with everybody else for book was it book five, A Dance with Dragons? Yes, yeah. Um, but I remember reading all the first 
well it's like six or seven books isn't it but they're splitting four books into there yeah, are many because they were too big and then thinking it'd be really cool if they made a film or whatever and then it gets announced that it's happening probably a year or so after the last book came out isn't it roughly around then yeah and just thinking this is going to be amazing but then reading the last book and wondering oh that ended very sharply. I wonder how they'll characterize that and who will play this in the TV series and how this will go down. And of course, as we get to the middle portion of the discussion, we'll find out my feelings on that scene not hmm. being included. What about you, Steve? For me, I've got to I never read the books until way late in. Actually, I never read the books. I listened to audio books uh, at work. Same thing. Get the, the old mind occupied and off the horrors of employment. But... um. For me, it was a case of, I was just curious to know what a TV show with a £5 million per episode budget looked like. Yeah, same. And I remember just, I remember watching the first episode thinking, eh, it's kind of good, I suppose. I mean, Sean Bean's in it. The guy playing, uh, you know, uh, uh, Robert Baratheon, he, he, he was kind of funny and kind of engaging, but I wasn't exactly completely sold on it by the end of episode one. But there was enough in there to keep me watching until that episode two, and then by then by about the end, by, by about episode three, I was kind of I was like, okay, this is this has got a story to it. Um, it's weird because if you look, the effects on the early season of the dragons and stuff are a bit a bit light, and obviously when they get a little bit like, a little bit more in, they get a lot better. But it was very effects light at times. But in the, I think those early early episodes, I think it really was. Um, really was Sean Bean carrying things for me. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, they'd seen Sean Bean in things like Sharp and then obviously yeah. as Boromir in Lord of the Rings and they'd seen him on the posters and nobody knew what Game of Thrones was unless they were the book geeks and it was quite this sort of small little community. Of course, you had the free folk over on Reddit strumming themselves to the books for the last however many years and waiting for the next one to come along, but they were a small portion of humanity. So everyone sees Sean on the posters and goes right I'm watching it and the TV series did this horrifically dark thing of making you love him and then pulling him away from you mm. um, but that's what drew everyone in and I think a lot of people will have read the books off the back of watching season one and then as it's unfolded they've gone similarly to how people did with The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings they've gone oh, hang on a minute as you alluded to Stu all my favorite characters and all the little turns and twists aren't there but i understand why they're not because they're having to frame a story in a very short space of time although it's a long episode it's still not long enough to do all the little idiosyncrasies we wanted interesting you pick up on on sean bean um we need sort of really good 90s electro rock music playing in the background every time he comes on screen like in sharp but Obviously, oh, yeah. for most of the cast you've got you've got some people you know lena Headey and people like that who who were relatively well-known names but they decided obviously to cast a lot of smaller actors bigger than me i'm not insulting them by saying that but a lot of smaller names and sean bean as you say became kind of the the poster boy of the tv series didn't he yeah. and it's interesting because i knew he was in it i knew he was there i love sean bean i love his work but i because i went straight to the books and read the books ned stark is not the main character of course things that happen to him in the first book kind of are the springing off point sort of the, the things the spark that ignites the you know the, the yeah war. 
It's Maybe like Ned Sparks, Ned, not, not Ned Spark, Ned Stark's oh. open neck hole is the funnel with which Game of Thrones is fed to you through for the rest of the yeah. seasons. You know, if, if the things didn't happen to him in season one, you know, if he says no to Robert Baratheon, I'm not going down south with you, um, things change completely. He has a different hand, everything changes. But in the books, of course, you don't have a main character. In the books, you have several characters, all who have prominence, all who have their own chapters, and that's expanded upon in later books, of course, as various characters get get their time in the limelight. And so Ned, in the books, is a catalyst, of course. He is sort of one of the driving forces. But when he dies, it's not the death of the main character like it is in the TV series. And that, for me, is something that, that I found quite jarring in the TV series that was it important of things to come? I don't know. But when Sean Bean was kind of set up on this pedestal, I know what they were trying to do. You look at it and they're trying to set up this world and trying to set up the events that are coming. But when he sort of gets killed off, they put such prominence on that moment in the, in the, in the TV series before anything else has happened that it kind of, I don't know, it just, it, it's completely different in the books when he dies. In the books, it's like, oh my God, that, that's sort of come a little bit out of left field, you know, but it still felt just like a character dying. In that point in the book, we'd already had about 400 characters die. It wasn't anything, anything special. So I can't remember whose perspective is it from that chapter? Is it his perspective or is it from Arya's perspective? I think it's, I think it's Arya, isn't it? Yeah, because she's watching on for the plinth. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah, she is. Yeah. Yeah, I was just trying to think because I was thinking if they did it from Ned's perspective, it'd be hard to give his feelings after what happened to him, wouldn't it? We did. And that Um, is, that's something that as, as an author, and I know Steve, um, well, actually more so than mine, I know Steve's book has been obviously compared to Game of Thrones um, in its, in its scope. It's something that I, it's a method of writing I actually used from the Game of Thrones books actually is, is I don't have a strict narrative following one person. I have several chapters driven by different people and like Game of Thrones, they kind of intertwine and they weave around each other, eventually coming together at the end of of the piece, which kind of is, is the rough formula that the books tend to take the, if I remember the first three or four books kind of followed that formula where towards the end of the book, the path started to cross a little bit more. Um, And I think that was one of the big problems they had with the TV series, of course, is when you're adapting something with that much scope, I think George RR Martin has said there's like a thousand named characters in the book. How do you, how do you, how do you put that on television? You know, how do you? There's maybe a hundred in the TV series if we're lucky, I think. You had to condense them all, didn't you? Well, the thing I liked about it is, if you look at, say, the movie Rocky, for example, you've got the bit at the end where he's having a big punch up with uh, Apollo Creed. And you sort of, for me, I remember, I always loved the Rocky films. Great movie, great films, all of them. I love them all in their own little mad ways. But the film's called Rocky. You know Rocky's going to win. You know he's going to come out on top. The film isn't called Apollo. They didn't. They waited years for it on Apollo Creed film. So it's like you kind of know which way it's going to go. And it's, it's, with Game of Thrones, they had this wonderful way of killing off characters, and that gave you a nice impression. Nobody was actually safe, and every character was up for grabs, and any character could die at any moment, and it didn't really matter which way it was going. There was a chance that, that character could die, didn't matter how popular they were or how 
big a name they were or anything like that or how established they were they could always go and for me that was kind of what drew me in because i sat and thought well this guy might make it she might die he might not maybe and that's always what kept me going because i sort of thought well no one here's safe and that's that's kind of a staple of fiction i've uh, i've learned to enjoy because again if, if a character if you know a character isn't going to die for what reason for any reason whatsoever or isn't going to lose or anything then you pretty much you don't have quite the investment i don't find no true was there ever anyone that you thought they were going to kill and then they just kept them living um that's a loaded question because that is a very different oh, question to oh, john thought, and catelyn don't count I thought, I thought i thought ruse bolton i didn't think he was going to go true actually yeah yeah, Roos would have been really interesting to run into the later seasons and it would have been a better thing for Roos to have killed Ramsay, for me. Now, Blackfish as well, I think. It, I, I could have yeah, seen yeah. had they not forgotten about him for about three seasons. The thing is, in the book, the, all these things about the Riverlands and the way the story is told there, it's all so open and so ready to boil over as the book five ends. Of you course, really they remember... Much didn't really want to give them too much direction with that because they weren't going to focus on it too heavily. So they kind of just shat mm. on it and left it alone. A lot of characters are still alive in the books sort of as of right now that we saw die in the TV series, of course, which does. Yep. And, and that's not just, Oh, they're going to die in the next book. A lot of characters were killed off or, or, or not killed off in very different circumstances and very different scenes. And so of course you watch it and you think, or is, is something going on there? I mean, you asked that question, Alex, of, of is there anyone's death that surprised you? I can't remember the question now. Um, yeah. That is narratively a very different question to who do you think should have died? Because yeah. I always think, if you think about some of the great literature, from a storyline point of view, Frodo in Lord of the Rings should have died. Um, Harry Potter in Harry Potter would have been a better story had he have been dead at the end of it because sometimes that is a good character arc for those characters to have. Um, think about Red Dead Redemption, the second one. The only way for, for Arthur's character arc to end was for him to die. It wouldn't have worked if he was still alive. And so I think of some of the characters that in Game of Thrones should have died, and very unpopular to say, but I think the decision to leave Catelyn dead in the TV series was the right decision. Um, I'll come on to why I think more later on, but obviously they decided that Lady Stoneheart as a character wasn't necessary to the story they were telling. Um, personally, I think that Jon Snow should have stayed dead, if only because it would have, as Steve was saying earlier on, nobody is safe in the, in this TV series except for Jon Snow. <laughs> like, and he was kind of set up almost like this this Jesus Christ-esque saviour from the start. And, and I personally think that's narratively very lazy. So I think for his character arc, his death would have been a lot more impactful now had we known. And of course, in the books, he's dead. He's just being killed. We don't know that he's being resurrected in the books. We now know that he probably will be because... Ugh. But, you know, I just think in terms of... a a better story he's a character that would have better served the narrative being dead and staying dead true because yeah. imagine imagine if you had all the revelations about his parentage come out after after his death so he's dead 
and all these revelations come out. Now imagine what that does to, to Daenerys. Again, I don't want to go into later on too much, but imagine her descent into madness, imagining that there is more than just Jon Snow out there who could be Targaryens, spoilers. You know, imagine what that could do. She knows Jon's dead, but did he have children? Did he have brothers, sisters? You know, I just think that's a far better storyline than we got. But... Mm-hmm. His resurrection was weak as piss too. I think that was where the rot started to set in for me at times. Is when he died, and then I think within about ten minutes he'd come back yeah. or something. That one, you know, you know, Melisandre does like one little prayer, and then boof, he's all right. I think that was kind of what killed it for me. Because I was like, Ugh. where were the stakes? You know, where where was the? You know, where were the stakes? In the go, you, you got that impression. It was, things felt a lot more believable within the context of things but it felt a lot more believable and a lot more authentic in many ways in the earlier seasons but in the later ones the fantasy elements got involved the fantasy elements at times felt intrusive to the show whenever mm. they were going with the more political stuff and that what do yeah, you did. guys like then let's sort of get the positives out of the way because I've got a feeling we're all going to have a lot more negative stuff to say so what did you like um, we'll start with Alex because he's green on my screen. What was it that you like about Game of Thrones? Try and do it in two or three sentences, maybe a couple of paragraphs. What sort of what what do you like about it the most? So from the book's perspective, as you've alluded to, I love that probably as a relatively uneducated reader at the time, this has led me into a lot of other stuff. I love the way the books were set out with the character per character structure for the chapters. And getting to see characters who you just read through another character's eyes was always very interesting. I love the whole War of the Roses thing mixed in with the Fantastical Beasts sort of element and the just the sheer grit of the show, more so than anything. And the fact that irrespective of whether you're in the books or you're in the TV series, you never know what's coming next, especially in the TV series once we surpass where the books are there were times where I thought, right, I can see this unfolding as it does. And then it just doesn't at all. So just the surprise and the deep sadness, deep rage, but the deep joy it brings you at the same time. Mm, I agree with that. Steve, what is it you like about the, what is it you like about the, the books and TV series? Well, other than the obvious visual element, because there isn't one bit in this that doesn't look absolutely breathtaking. It's, it all looks very authentic, you know. It's not like the old days of, say, Doctor Who, where the sets wobbled or anything. You know, everything looks really good and pristine. But for me, it's just the sheer depth that's in there, you know, of, um, of characters and the lore and the history and everything. There's just, there's so much thought has gone into it and so much uh, depth has gone in there that it's just hard not to just be amazed by the scope of things. It, it's, it, it, it feels like a big show anyway, and a, a very vast world because of the, um, the fact we're in a stage now where we can, we can show a vastness and we can show um, a really big and incredibly uh, massive world. But it's just the history behind that as well really, really added to it. And it's like, I mean, it only went for eight seasons, but it feels like it went for about 28 seasons just because of the sheer volume of history within each and every single little character and every little nugget and every location for me. Mm. I, I think, sorry, Stu, from what you just said there, Steve, with the way the size of the world and the way 
everything was portrayed in its little pockets and then slowly comes together. I think that was the best bit, especially with books when you're reading, because you think reading at the start of book one, that this is a massive world. Yeah. And then it spreads out to the south, then further south to Dawn, then to the east, to Pentos. And you're thinking, oh, there's a lot more than I ever thought there could possibly be. There's locations that we never visited in the show order books. That, that alone, yeah. It's insane. That's, 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 and they're not just set up to be explored later on, they're just there. So like Howland Reed's domain, we never go there, but we hear about it a hell of a lot, yeah. especially in the Bran episodes as he's, his character arc develops just before Jojen dies. And where is um, where is Miss Sunday? Where's she from? Lise. Yeah, Tarth. No, not Tarth Brienne. Mm. What about your IT, the um... Miss Sunday of Narth. That's the one. Your, your IT, the Oriental counterpart. Yes, yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. Never go there. I think we meet one or two characters from there that are expositionary, but that's an entire world we've never even touched upon. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I like because again, it does follow on that world. Is is I've always been a Tolkien fan since I was very, very, very young, and I've always been a fantasy fan. But of course, fantasy for a long time, Dungeons and Dragons, Warhammer, it unfairly had this kind of stigma, which was kind of nerdy and geeky, and very unfairly because I don't agree with that assessment at all. But what Game of Thrones did was, I think. From from both of what you said, you know the, the the history elements from the War of the Roses, the political elements, um, it kind of made fantasy cool. Um, and in the books, certainly, sort of it it added in the sex, didn't it? It added in the the violence and it added in this kind of realism that Tolkien always alluded to. You know, in Tolkien, you've got this big evil in Sauron, um, but he never really does anything bad except for sing at people. Sometimes he does a lot worse. Yeah. Than that. I'm doing that for comedic fun. Uh, but in game of Thrones, the villains were ripping people's heads off and killing people and raping and pillaging. And they were doing horrible, nasty things. And so you're reading this fantasy and you're thinking, good Lord, this is, this is gritty. This is real. This is dark. And, I think then moving on from the books is what I sort of always liked about the books as well was this expanded universe, as Steve said, but then moving into the TV series, I really liked that they kept that gritty darkness to it. You know, it was all very muddy, even though this is, this is a kind of high fantasy world. And certainly in some of the expanded universe, Game of Thrones stuff, like the Duncan egg stories, you've got these kind of knights in armor and what have you. And we hear about it. Um, Rhaegar Targaryen at the Trident in his armor with jewels. You know, you, you get this kind of high fantasy medieval stuff, but in the show, all we see is mud and brown and, squalor and horrid and sort of that's something i really liked about it the show was so evocative of this kind of horrible world that you don't want to go to but you really want to go to at the same time um and i did like i do like that about george's world building very different to tolkien's and you know who described every tree branch and just gave every name a leaf leaf a name whatever um george r r martin isn't that in-depth but he does build this world. And I think a lot of that is, is the fact that it's a world that we can recognize kind of as our own. Yeah. I did like that. I like those grounded elements. Um, and I think that's probably why I started to struggle as the series went on with some of the more 
fantastical elements um, because I just didn't think they gelled quite as well or weren't explained quite as well. Certainly in the TV series. There was a lot of forced CGI crap, wasn't there? Yeah, but as Steve said earlier on, you're spending five million on an episode. You're not paying your actors that much money, are you? Um, So they had to spend the money somewhere. True. I just remember, I can't remember which one it is, because I'm useless with uh, episodes and stuff, but there was one time where I think we get first introduced to the Children of the Forest. Yeah. And it just looked so weird, because they're sort of, it, it just, all of a sudden it went like, sort of, BBC Chronicles of Narnia 1986 or something. It just looked so <laughs> out of place to what we've had previously building up to that. Yeah. And it was like, oh, okay. And that's what I mean about the world building, sort of in the first, I mean, the first season... I have nothing but praise for. It was just amazing how it was constructed. And as you said, you then get to these more fantasy elements. And as opposed to, say, a Star Wars, where they use a lot of practical effects, they obviously decided to use use the CGI, which then, for me, just kind of... That scene where Sam's behind that rock, <laughs> panicking in the cold, and then that... Um, White Walker comes up in his horse and looks at the camera and and I, that was one of the first moments I remember in the whole series just kind of cringing up when he looked at the camera like oh come on oh. Yeah, it's a little bit wild west that wasn't it very wild west yeah I tell you something else I think was really good can we appreciate how good the first series especially was in terms of its trueness to the book like that and I don't know if that speaks a lot to George R. R. Martin's skillful writing or if it speaks a lot to his involvement in the first season. I don't know. But that was like shot for shot sometimes, wasn't it? It was incredible. Yeah, especially the stuff in Winterfell near the Heart Tree and things like that. It was just literally word for word, scene for, sh- for scene, wasn't it? Yeah. The only thing I think they got wrong, and I'm sure some people will... Uh... Crucify me this online. Crucify me for this online, I should say. Uh, uh, Varys' mate, Mario, I can't pronounce the his name, Mario Lahopus, Hopest. Yeah. Um, originally, he was played by Ian McNeese in like a, um, they had like a work print version that they did. And it was played, which you can look up online, it's, um, there's some interesting pictures and that. But it was originally done by Ian McNeese. And uh, he looked exactly how you would visualize. Uh, is it Lario Mypotis or? I know who you mean, yeah. Yeah, the one whose name's Tony Arsenal. Answers on a postcard, listeners. Yeah. Answers on a postcard. That's the only thing, I think. That's the only one was I remember seeing the work, bits and pieces of a, pictures of a work print version, and he looks spot on perfect how I imagine he would. And uh, the other guy, got, he wasn't even around that long, it was a shame. And he played uh, Peter Mannion in, in, the, in the thick of it. So he's, he's really good anyway. Oh, yeah. Steve Wasteful, they just didn't didn't have that character in it a lot more, to be honest. Yeah. A lot yeah. of very good actors got very bad characters. Yeah. Mm. And very small characters as well. Um, but I'm sure there's budgetary reasons for that, perhaps. I don't know. But it's maybe once they paid Charles Dance, they probably couldn't afford to have anything apart from crappy oh. dragon CGI for another five seasons. What a character that man. Oh. Just Everything about him, the the show. I think you've said it to me before, Steve. That the show started to go downhill when he left. For Definitely. me, for me, it started it started to go on a bit. Of, and I loved his death. 
and I love the actual the whole build up and everything and that. But the minute uh, Lord Tywin went, it sort of it lost a bit of its flavour for me because he was really holding a lot of stuff together. A lot of characters were bouncing off him really well, and everything just really connected to him and interconnected him quite well. I thought. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think? And I know this is an off-debated question on Reddit and the internet. Do you think Tywin, the character, knew about his son and daughter? Yes. I think he did, and I think it was sort of ignorance being bliss. Yeah. And because there are a few lines, you know, in that wonderful scene between um, Charles Dance and Lena Headey, where they're having that discussion, and I can't remember the line, but there's just that one little line which is so poignant, where he sort of almost admits, he says, I know what they say about about my house and I won't have it. And it's just, I mean, he was he was incredible in, in every scene he was in. I think I think only Elena Tyrell got close to to sort of stealing stealing the limelight in scenes. He was oh, Charles Dancer and Tywin Lannister, what a character. I think he's again another great example I haven't yet touched on this but this is something that I've really appreciated of an actor that's come up if you will treading the boards to come into te- to television and film you can really tell that he's a theatre actor same yes, with Peter yeah. Dinklage who is very very prominent in the sort of mid to late 90s and early 2000s Shakespeare sort of shows mm for actual theatre productions, you can really, really tell that they are people who become obsessed with their characters and have become their characters. Like from the moment I saw Charles Dance skinning that buck to the last moment he expires and shits himself on the pot, there, it was gold all the way. There was never a bad scene with him in it at all. Apparently he never learned to do that with a buck until, before, until the show, apparently. Yeah, I've heard that, yeah. Crazy I job. think he's one of those that's very method and he just gets into mm. whatever he has to do irrespective of what it is. He goes, yeah, okay. And it's something that you, you watch back or in, in my case, I haven't watched it since, since the incident, but you look back <laughs> and, and you realise actually this is from a sort of character point of view now. Um, so from Tyrion rather than Charles Dance. Mm. But you look back and you, and you realise that as soon as he dies, that is when the Lannister family start to fall apart. And that is how you write a character who's meant to be like Tywin, the head of the family, the mafia boss, you know. You show that when he's gone, when that influence has gone, they and they do, they just all fall apart. You know, Joffrey starts going maniacal. Um, you know, Cersei especially. I can't remember if Joffrey's dead, actually, before Tywin. I can't remember. Um, but, to, um, but Cersei just loses the plot without sort of the, the firm guidance of, of her dad. And of course, the Jamie plot starts to get a little bit more hazy. You know, he doesn't become quite as black and white. And of course, Tyrion, even though him and him and Tywin have this horrid, horrid relationship, even Tyrion as a character learns so much from Tywin. And his death really impacts him as a character, which is amazing. Yeah. When, when, did, when did Tyrion start getting stupid? Because so, he's the smartest, smartest character in the, the middle of season five, when he starts yeah. getting out Fox and all these battle movements, and they're all going mm. on about how it's sort of, at least all the reviews I was watching at the time were going on about how he's now deeply affected by the loss of Shay and all these things that have happened to him. And I think, no, he actually just got cocky and thought he was the best. And yeah. he stopped trying. 
Well, it just it's it's such a departure from what we've had for the past four seasons at that stage. And I don't <laughs> think in the books it will happen. I think they did it for the TV series to show that this unflappable mind was flappable, to give mm. Cersei especially some more credence in the show. I think there there is this kind of culture, isn't there, of especially after the TV TV series. And again, I think this is why I prefer the books. The books are uh, so much more shades of grey. And the TV series kind of presents Starks are the good guys and Lannisters are the baddies. You yeah, know? Yeah. But, but Tywin as a character, he, he's not a bad guy. Everything he does is practical. It's sensible. Occasionally he's involved in, in, in things which are, aren't perfect, but he explains to the viewer through the scenes he's in why he's done them and you think that that makes perfect sense of course the the whole backstory thing about him turning his back on um daenerys's father and oh him throwing open the gates of the city you know tywin lannister's here and then tywin's men sacking the town and effectively ending the war um again he explains that in one scene he explains why he did it and of course, you then think, well, that makes perfect sense. This guy is the smartest guy in the room. He's the smartest guy in this entire TV show. Um, I think smarter than Littlefinger and certainly smarter than Tyrion um, and oh, certainly yeah. smarter than Cersei, who Cersei, of course, that's, that's her characterization. She likes to think she's the smartest person in the game. But in reality, she's she's far from it. Far mm. from it. Um, who are your favorite characters on the show and books, of course, or both? So just to pick one. Go on, yeah, one or two. Um, go with two, and I'll tell you, go, go with two, because I'm going to have to give you two. Okay, so favourite mainline character for me is Tyrion, irrespective of his actions later on and the fall of him. And favourite character from a perspective of I always clung on to them from the beginning is Arya. Mm. Okay. Did you think that her her story kind of did the opposite of Daenerys's, and and towards the end, certainly in the books, it slowed down a bit? Because that was certainly my impression of her. I of think her it story. did, but I think they're ramping Arya up for something very different to what she ended up doing in the TV series in the books. Mm. I think Arya will wear Jaime's face to kill Cersei in the books. It will just be a thing. It was written. Or as they say in the Dothraki, it is written. <laughs> it is written. Yeah, yeah. to me, like... she's the most complex character in the entire thing because we still don't know anything about her. And in the book, she's only like six years old, isn't she? So it's crazy. Oh, yeah, she's like still yeah. knocking about in the womb, stabbing geezers with a needle, yeah. Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? Steve, what about you? What are your favourite characters? Oh, gosh. Um, I'd go with uh, Lord Varys. Mm. And uh, Littlefinger. Yeah, My they are two good shouts. They're just well. I don't. So I, I always like the fact that Littlefinger was always several steps ahead. I, generally, how I generally thought it all was going to go was I generally thought he was going to wind up on the throne for one simple reason, and that was um, you had one little piece. I think it's season two where you have um, uh, Varys talking with Lady Elena in the gardens. And he basically says that little finger would burn the entire city to ash so long as he could. He'd burn the entire city to the ground as long as he could sit upon a throne of ash. Yeah. And I kind of thought, is that one of those things? Is that where it's going? And then, 
Obviously not, no. Because I think there was a lot of red herring mm. foreshadowing in the TV seasons, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that was. And I hope. Sorry. That, that 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 was the one. That was one of the ones for me. I, I remember at that point thinking, "Yeah, this this isn't gonna go the way I wanted it to." So. I think you can draw some semi-direct comparisons between Varys and Tywin Lannister as well, because whilst Tywin would do everything that was correct for the realm, but with the Lannisters' interest at the forefront, Varys would do things with the Lannisters' interest in the background, but with the realm as the forefront, but nobody else knew it until it was too late for him to be able to, be able to save anything. Mm. Who are yours, <laughs> Stu? Well... I, I said this once to, to a lady I work with, a lovely lady, because um, she started reading the books and she said to me, who's your favourite character? So I'll go with my favourite character from the books. And I said, Jamie. And she nearly flew off the chair at me and, and strangled me. She was only on book two. And of course, Jamie in the first two or three books is this handsome, arrogant, sister shagging, rude, you know, pushing a kid out of a window. He's just the most irredeemable asshole. And he's cocky, and of course he, you know, he he kills um, Jory Cassell, doesn't he? Um, Ned Stark's yeah, mate, yeah. and there's no need to do that. He is just this arrogant asshole. But as the books go on, slowly you start to see that it's all this cover, it's all this front, and I, I don't think it's ever expressly mentioned, but I it almost gives the impression that Cersei was always the leading partner in their incest. Um, and Jamie just kind of had this love for his family. Of course, he, he loves Tyrion. He loves his brother with all of his heart. And there aren't many people that love Tyrion in that series. And as the books go on, he has the, the most amazing character progression, I think, out of any one character. Because especially when he loses his hand and he loses yeah. everything that makes him Jamie Lannister. Um, of course, he cuts his golden hair, doesn't he? He grows a he grows a beard, um, which Cersei tells him to shave off, but he doesn't. And there's that wonderful scene where, because um, in the books we haven't we haven't quite caught up yet, and then Cersei's on trial, um, and she does trial by combat, and she's written a letter to Jamie, hasn't she? And Jamie throws the letter in the fire. He's like, "No, I'm not doing this. I've I've moved on." And the TV show did. The dirty on Jamie, to be honest, I think. I think they kind of realised that sort of midway through season seven, tried to bring it back, kind of brought it back with the whole Brienne of Tarf thing, completely screwed the pooch on that one and then ruined it by the end, in my opinion. Um, but there's the wonderful scene in the TV series where Jamie's in the bath. That's what I was about to allude to. Talking to Brienne and... Again, here's this guy who, again, up until this point in the TV series, um, he's, you know, yeah, I stabbed him in the back. What are you going to do about it? Call me Kingslayer? Well, I'll kill you because I'm better than you. You know, he's so, he doesn't care about what anyone thinks. What's that line? Lions don't concern themselves with the opinions of sheep. That He lives by that mantra and he's in the bath and he's saying, he's like, Kingslayer, Kingslayer, they call me, you know, burn them all, he said burn them all and you realize oh hold on a minute this guy sacrificed himself mentally to save an entire city of people uh-huh. and he knew when he stabbed you know when he stabbed the mad king in the back he knew that he would forever be tainted with that 
stigma with that kind of thing which would destroy his chivalric honor but he still did it because it was the right thing to do and he carried that with him and that scene is just it's incredible it's like i said in terms of his character arc it's in the books it's fantastic i think for the tv show though i I think my favorite character (laughs) oh i don't don't know it's it's a lot harder because there's so many peaks and troughs so i used to really love Tyrion. But as, as Steve said, he turned stupid at one point. Um, mm. Sort of, there's scenes where you really like Jorah Mormont, Simple Lord, but other times he just kind of. I think, in truth, I think probably the only character I like all the way through their run on the TV series was probably Rob Stark, because. Again, they they make him they give him this vulnerability, you know, where he talks to Catelyn and he's just like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm scared. I'm frightened. You know, I'm meant to be leading this army, and he's shown he's shown to be incredibly capable. He's shown to be fair. He's shown to be just. He's shown to have all these mature qualities for a position he's been completely thrust into because he's a boy in the first episode when we see him. You know, a carefree boy, and I just think that again, his death was justified and it was well not justified but i think it was justified from a storytelling perspective because here you had this character who was kind of king arthur he was this heroic figure and in the game of thrones you win or you die and he was never going to win and so i think it was a he had a really good really good arc in the tv series i think they did him did him really well and i, I think it was the best episodes yeah, I watched today the scene where they've got Jamie in the encampment and they're taking him from camp to camp so as not to leave him in a castle so that Tywin mm. gets wind of it and goes and convinces the Lord to hand him over and the conversation him and Jamie have just before he allows the wolf in to sort of shit Jamie up is so so well done and the conver- when they're saying Jamie's saying, you know, we could end this right now, you, me, man to man. And Rob says, well, no, because you know how that ends and it ends favorably for you. And what a smart thing to do. You know, there are established in that world, there are people who would fight Jamie Lannister for the 1% chance that they beat him yeah. and become this amazing, renowned... Jon Snow would have fought him and died and it would have been yeah. done. Jon Snow would have, well, Jon Snow would have fought him and won, with, you know beams from heaven by the end of the tv series but um but yeah come down on a skateboard and kick flipped into jamie lennis's face yeah radical bruv we've spoke a lot about things that are good and i am itching because we keep flirting with it we keep taking it out for dinner we keep dipping in with things that we want to say that are negative so remember not negative listeners viewers um these aren't negative. These are our opinions. We're entitled to them. Um, constructive. Is what constructive criticism exactly. for anyone planning on having Things a five we would have preferred to have been done differently is all yeah. we need to worry about, isn't it? So yeah. for the two of you, I'll tell you mine first. What was the moment where you kind of thought, oh, wait a minute. And for me, I think that was the end of season four because I didn't watch season five because I kind of had enough. And I I couldn't tell you what it was, one particular thing. It's just that whole season for me, 
things started to kind of fall apart and it became a little bit too Hollywood for me and they'd cut out certain characters and chopped and changed and moved things around and it just for me started to get a little bit I said like I said I can't put my finger on it and I probably still can't now not until later seasons um because I actually quite enjoyed season six for what it was but about season four like I said it just got a little bit I think it's because they started to put John and Daenerys on this kind of narrative pedestal. And Daenerys, for me, early on, was a very boring character. And Jon Snow, for me, early on, was a very boring character. Um, he had one moment, I think, where he sort of was quite a cool character, quite quite, quite a character you'd want to follow. Um, but then he just kind of became this rather dull, stoic leader of men um and so that's when it lost me what about you guys when when did you sort of start thinking that things weren't all good on the good shit game of thrones when probably for me when after the red wedding it didn't cut to what i was expecting to see with catelyn stark and I was expecting to see a cut of Beric Dondarrion and his men crossing a river ford and seeing a body floating down river and realising it's her and saving her. And then it made me realise that they've actually made a conscious decision to disrupt the narrative in favour of Hollywoodisms. But that is a decision um, you have to make, I think. Again, I completely agree with you because, no, I agree, if if you're set on something and you don't see it, it's frustrating. But um, I think of Lord of the Rings again, I remember Peter Jackson saying that when they looked at Lord of the Rings, they had to tell the story from the point of view of Frodo and the ring, which meant that lots of things had to be cut out because, of course, Frodo and the ring weren't experiencing those things. And that's probably, like I said, with mine, season four is when you realise, hold on a minute, this is the story of Daenerys and Jon Snow. This isn't the story of Westeros. And I think that's probably explained your thing there was they realised that what does Lady Stoneheart have to do with Daenerys and Jon Snow? That's the thing. I think there is, there's no denying that it's, it very quickly in the beginning of season five became a song of ice and fire and nothing else involved was allowed to be portrayed unless it led into their pathways eventually. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. But I think from everyone that had read the books, and got to that point at the end of book five where you think, oh God, and it blacks out with Brienne hanging, for that not to continue, or at least not to ever arrive, was a bit of a shock. And I think a lot of people sort of lost interest. Like you say yourself, you didn't watch season five. I watched season five, but I couldn't recall anything from it now because I've turned it off in my head. For me... And this might be a bit long-winded, but um, I'll run with it as long as I can. Um, if you look at the uh, the Alien movies, um, the first one's a horror film, the second one's kind of an action-y one. By the time we get to the third one, we get to like the marketing of Alien 3, and there's like a advert where the, the alien gets a can of Pepsi out of a machine. And that's like, you know, it's like, that, was, that for me was a moment I realised... Or if you look back, you sort of realise that's that's when it becomes too Hollywood and it becomes too popular and therefore it has to kind of be more appeasing and fan servicey. And that to me, I think, was 
when I started off Game of Thrones, when merchandise was coming out that had, you know, I drink and I know things, you know, and things of that nature, basically. And when everything's becoming merchandised, and to that point, they were kind of whitewashing characters and making characters kind of sort of likable characters, kind of flawless, basically. And it was like, um, uh, you take a look at Tyrion. They initially mentioned the fact that he was previously married and um, Tywin had his, um, his wife raped and killed. Actually, I don't know if she has him killed, but yeah, he has a rape by like eight or ten men or something, you know. And um, that's never mentioned again, basically, because it makes Tyrion look fallible and um, it makes him look not such a great character. And uh, I always look at it and sort of think, well, you have that with a lot of Looking back, you have that with a lot of characters. If you look at in the first seasons, a lot of these characters were flawed and they were interesting because they weren't perfect, basically. But in the later seasons, they become sort of, sort of daft Hollywood sort of tropes were added into them and stuff. And by by about season seven, by about the end of season five, I don't know about anyone else, but I was sick of just seeing Jon Snow's face, staring at, at looking into the snow, looking bored and moody. Because that kind of became yeah. his his thing. It was yeah. it was okay. This is Jon Snow. What do we do with Jon Snow? Well, usually he just looks out into a, a horizon, looking kind of brooding, and you know, and it sort of became that thing. It's like okay, what do we do with Daenerys? Well, Daenerys's thing is she um, she makes big bold speeches, smiles, and. Um, has a dragon burn stuff and that become kind of things so that became a case of right well, we've got here's the things our characters do let's make them do them as opposed to give them any kind of real meat on the bones so to speak i think yeah. now little finger follows that narrative as well <laughs> doesn't he and that's a real shame because oh. the character who in the early seasons you watch it and this guy is as you said he's going to be the king of this town he's going to yeah. win yeah. this He's going to be there and everyone else is going to be dead and he's just going to be laughing in his brothels because he was just the most intelligent guy. And then he went out in the end like a bitch. Like, <laughs> what the hell was that? That was just unreal. Offensive. Well, that, uh, Do you not think that Littlefinger was unraveled the moment Cat died because he had this obsession with her and he had now had nothing else to cling on to and nothing else to win the kingdoms for because he had this vision of killing everyone and making her his queen finally, didn't he? After Brandon Stark had sort of emasculated him as a child. Well, they, yeah. they try and convert that off to Sansa, but it just doesn't work because it comes across, it came across as creepy before and now it comes across as some sort of Oedible weirdness. Oh, it's full on stable grooming, isn't it? Yeah, it's, pretty yeah cool. it, it's proper. It's proper chat room. Sort of <laughs> it's proper chat room pervert stuff at that stage, isn't it? You know, whereas before it was like, man, I'd love to, I'd love to nail my best mate's wife. But then it becomes sort of chat work, chat room pervert, and liking all your Facebook pitch, pictures and stuff at that stage. It got weird at that stage. I mean, to address your point, Alex, you have to kind of withdraw from the pure absurdity of everything for a minute and yeah. assume everything works okay that he persuades somebody to kill somebody and then blame that on somebody else the whole killing off um robert arin and then blaming it on this and then getting the lannisters i mean this is a man who got the lannisters and starks to go to war with each other like that that's incredible again you suspend your disbelief he did it this is what Littlefinger does. So then to assume that by the end he cannot get over the death 
of Catalin to the point that he completely doesn't realise that he's training Sansa to be better than him, which is a whole nother problem in my opinion. You just such think, a weak storyline that is. Doesn't he even grieve her when 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 Caitlin dies? Does he even grieve grieve no, at all? And this is the thing: Caitlin dies so early on that surely by I mean you're thinking it's like four seasons later. By then, he would have at least kind of pulled him. Okay, he can be upset and depressed, but he would have at least kind of worked out another plan to just complete. I mean, what was the plan in the end? Get the Knights of the Vale up north. And oh my God, it makes me angry in that scene where he's like, Yes, I killed her. I killed Lisa Arryn. Now, Knights of the Vale, protect me. Why would they protect you when you've just admitted to killing her? I think there was a lot of times where he thought yeah, it was a power superseded him and he then realised very quickly that he was still this tiny little man that had just made some dirty plots. But why was he even making plots at that point? It's like, you know, okay, we're all going to go to war with the dead and they're vicious sods, so we're not going to survive this unless we all band together. But Littlefinger's still scheming away and it seems like he's scheming away just for the hell of it. So it I think you have the typical sense. disease of everyone in King's Landing where they just don't believe the dead are a thing. Mm. I, I, until honestly, it's far too late even when they show you know the in is it season end of season seven or beginning of season eight where they bring the white all the way to king's landing and the hound <laughs> kicks him out of a box and plays around with him for 10 minutes and then they talk about it and daenerys not daenerys sorry cersei still looks like she doesn't believe it's a real thing <laughs> oh, you're talking about that's all that's all the ridiculous geography as well, isn't it? Like getting from King's in the first season it takes them three months to get from King's Landing to, to Winterfell, and then in that season it takes them like two days to get down there. It was I mean, I have to say now Aidan Gillen who who played Littlefinger, he played every scene fantastic. Like he was oh, he did. Incredible. one of the best actors in that entire show. But again, just he, the only way they could have done his character any worse is if he turned up and had done a deal with the Night King. That would be the only way they could have ruined that character any more than they did. This is a guy that probably second only to Varys. I mean, probably even more so than Varys. He knew everything. He knew everyone. He had everything going on. And he just gets completely undone by essentially a look behind you prank. It was ridiculous. And Varys gets killed for being a bit of a gossip. <laughs> oh, like cotton or something. Oh, okay. Bloody yeah, Varys's death is such a waste. Yeah. That was that was a perfect segue, Steve, for from talking about Littlefinger to talking about one of my pet hates in writing, which is cheap heat. I hate cheap heat. And Daenerys had, I think, probably second only to Littlefinger, and there might even be a case to greater than Littlefinger, the worst writing in that entire show. Because how they turned her from this idealistic, I'm not going to be my father, I'm going to do everything right, to this evil person for killing Varys who said he didn't like her hair done a certain way, was unreal. They just click of the finger, oh, by the way, she's mad now. What exactly did Varys do? All he did was just tell the truth. You know, John's got a better claim than you. Yes. That's that's like two drunks outside a nightclub, you know. It's like, what do you mean? What do you mean, mate? What do you mean? The thing is, though, the the Varys of the earlier seasons would never have said that. No. No. (laughs) He would have located her and stabbed her in the back thereafter. It would have been a much more interesting end. I know there is 
there is a case, isn't there, for people saying that, um, you know, Tyrion took out um, took out Varys. It was all Tyrion's kind of. He needed Varys out of the picture. But again, that makes no sense. No, because they're great mates, and unlike any, unlike many friends you've seen, you kind of assume that they're not actually that great, like greater pals, and uh, both sides are playing each other. But they actually were great friends in the end. Mm. And like, 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 uh, the whole thing's just. And I mean, to go to go to Daenerys, I want to go back to that cheap heat because I know again she is a fan favorite and Amelia Clark, beautiful human being, fantastic actress, really played that role better than anyone in this world could ever have done. Um, but the writing, the fact that they just kind of they they turned her heel without any kind of precedent and again that's quite clever because remember her dad was the mad king and if you read into the deep lore her dad you know did kind of turn unnecessarily but there's just all this kind of it's none of it is explained and all it takes is a couple of lines from a couple of characters to kind of you know oh she was in the bath last night and she was just moaning her head off all night. Like little things like that, which would just explain how she goes from this character who's sort of like, you know, I'm going to break the wheel, you know, Ooh, and you're thinking, yes, preach sister, break the wheel. Come on, let's change Westeros. Go girl. Yeah. To just, now nah, I'm just going to set fire to everything because my friend died. Like, come on. Come when, on. Was, when was Melisandre ever that important? Let's be honest here. Yeah. It's, it was very much felt, like by the middle of season seven they wanted to wrap it up i remember when they finished season six and they said we're doing two more seasons i remember the internet going up in arms a bit and they were saying what do you mean you need at least four more seasons to wrap this up and then they of of course announced oh and we're only doing eight episodes per season no six episodes per season but don't worry one of them will be longer so it's like seven okay So everyone was like, well, what would you mean? Like you, you're reducing the amount of time you've got now to tell these stories. And it just seemed to me like they, they knew the ending they needed to do. And again, I think in terms of a narrative ending, Daenerys being dead was a good ending. I think great ending. My, my personal ending has always ended with her being dead because I think there's this whole kind of absolute power corrupts, absolutely story there. Um, but it's like, oh, we've got eight episodes to turn her into a villain. How can we do it? I know, let's get her to burn people and let's just get her to kill Varys for no reason. And she keeps looking at Tyrion funny and Jon Snow. Oh, I love him. Now I don't love him anymore because he's my brother. What? Like, just <laughs> always just a bit kind of, I know he was her uncle. It's all just a bit cousin. Wait, uncle, uncle. Yeah. She's his aunt. Yeah, yeah. Moving on. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean about the character it just all felt that they'd built up this character for season upon season upon season and then they just kind of went yeah but now we need her to be dead and we need everyone watching this to want her to be dead how can we do that it's the, it's the Anakin Skywalker get to kill children like cheap heat mm. cheap heat mm. and I don't like it it's lazy it's just Oh, there's better ways to do it and they did it better with other characters I think you know a lot better with other characters um, but Daenerys nah, nah I watched the whole, 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 king, whole, the whole thing burning earlier 
and visually it looked breathtaking. But even second, and this, only the second time I've seen it, because first time I watched it, it's one time I never watched it again. And I watched it for the second time of the day, a year removed. And just sort of seeing the fact that a bunch of bells are ringing set so often, you think, what? It doesn't make any bloody sense. Well, I know bells can be annoying and all, but, you know, well, it's church bells, but still. Come on, that's such a yeah. weak quite way to similar it. to the stuff they portray with their father, though, isn't it? Which always made me wonder about the stuff with Bran and the rumours, not the rumours, but the thoughts of was Bran always in the Mad King's head um, doing that stuff and telling him to burn them all, but it was actually him telling them to burn the White Walkers and it was nothing to do with burn all of your people. That's a good theory. I like that one. Yeah. Um, I, hope it goes, I hope it goes away because I do like that theory. Yeah. I'd quite like to push into talking of the end specifically and leading up to the end. And I think it'd be a nice time to segue into our thoughts on the way the end was crafted as opposed to fair enough. There's a lot of stuff we hate, but we'll get into the real hatred. Now we're talking about the climax of the show. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. I think that's, that's how the ending of the show or, or certainly by the ending of the show, I, th I think that's where our disappointment came in. It sounds like we all have very similar kind of, you know, kind of reactions, although to very different bits of the TV series. I think we all had similar reactions. It sounds like we were all married to an idea from the books or character or a characterization of a, of a character that when it didn't quite manifest itself on the screen, we, we struggled and, I think that's fine when when you've got characters crafted so expertly like George R. R. Martin has done, people are going to fall in love with, with those characters. And, and when they don't get those characters, but instead get a kind of weird shadow kind of facsimile of them, people are understandably going to be a little bit frustrated, aren't they? Yeah. And I think that takes us quite well into sort of our thoughts on the last couple of seasons, specifically in the end. And, maybe it'd be nice for us to each touch on how we expected or wanted it to end in comparison to how it actually did end. Um, so from my perspective, obviously the ending, we have this sort of mad rush in season eight of, Oh God, everyone's the other side of the world from each other. Let's quickly bring them together for an argument then push them apart again and then bring them back together again and then have Daenerys burn everything, get stabbed the end. Goodbye. Um, was very it was don't get me wrong it's a good ending but the way the ending should have been was it probably should have ended with that moment with the dragon carrying her off and blah 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 but we had this mm. episode of forced tie-ups because they couldn't write it well enough as it was going along it was kind of like an american teen sitcom wasn't it you know where are they now and everyone kind of finger gunning at the camera going da -da 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 -da. Tyrion became hand of the king and just it was kind of forced smiles all round wasn't it and everything's okay now yeah, the only genuine part I thought was good with that was um, uh, was, was, was when the uncle stepped forward to take the throne and they were like sit down mate that's the only I genuinely thought was quite good there what Edmund yeah. Yeah, yeah, when he was like, uh, well, I got, yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, it's like, I got experience actually, and uh, you know, I once ran a coffee shop, so maybe I should be. <laughs> was nobody else massively disappointed that it was who it was? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
Because for me, I just thought, oh, there's such great opportunity here for it to be someone really interesting and to have that, almost to get that Rob Stark feeling back. Mm. And then, if I'm honest, I'm, my, my current rage I'm feeling is even blocked from my mind who they put on the throne, but I just remember them doing it Brand. in a way. It yeah, Stark, it was Bran, because I think they were going, I thought Bran was going, no, nah, I'm a tree now, I'm, I'm organic, man. <laughs> oh, vegan power. And they're going, no, no, Bran, you've got to be king because you're the only one that can string a sentence or two together without trying to burn someone down or whore your way to an early grave. It was this really strange idea that he was somebody who could do things differently to everyone else. Tyrion was like, I think there's only one person who is not bound to the old ways. And you're like, yeah, another rich guy from a noble family. Ridiculous, because he is the old ways. But he could tell a story. Yeah. And that's why we're all here, isn't it? Well, well, that's true true for us, but we're not trying to run a bloody kingdom, are we? (laughs) Yeah, anyway. I I get Tyrion being the hand and all this sort of stuff. Great. But. Why why let Greyjoy live? He he achieves nothing anyway. Yeah. He's their sort of lesson in humility throughout the show, isn't he? He's their sort of archetypal, stick beaten, knocked down not tough guy necessarily but he's that sort of going back to the high school idiom he's like the geek that tries to rise above his station and be with the cool kids and quickly gets slapped back and they just drag it on for a long long time and uh, in the end he goes off to the wonderful island of Narf where there's a butterfly plague that kills anyone who isn't from Narf oh, um, oh he's clever isn't he yeah he's a winner oh I know you mean the um, unsullied guy yeah yeah Grey worm yeah. Worm, Mr. Uh, actually, going back to favourite characters, I think he was incredible. He was a very well acted, actually. He was a really good character all round. Again, probably just... the only bit I liked in season eight, where they walk in through the gates just as everything's sort of kicking off, and the initial rebellion are there, and he straight away throws that spear in that bloke's neck, and it's like, right here we go. Hmm. I think to answer your question, though, Alex, about the ending. For me, I always had an ending pegged in my head. I think like, my, lo, like most people with a brain, everyone knew that R plus L equals J. Everyone knew that John was a Targaryen from about book two. You know, it, it was so obvious. It was writing on the wall. So my personal ending in my head did always end with, with Daenerys dying because, like I said, there's a really beautiful, poignant kind of thing about somebody striving so much for something and then fate can't be changed you know i always like the idea of her as a targaryen being like her father the man king i think that's why i was so disappointed that they completely mishandled how they turned her into her father so daenerys dying was always an ending i think needed to be done for me though you know to touch on the things you touched on the whistle stop tour of Westeros where people learned how to suddenly run at 4,000 miles an hour to get here, go there, do this, do that. All of this really cheap writing to get everyone into the ending for the big final battle. John killing Daenerys made sense to a degree, but again, well, I was going to say, I still don't like it because I object to this idea of him being the savior character. 
I just think that's again such lazy writing that he's come out of this. And then at the end, you know, you've you've, you've got Grey Worm who watches his lover Missandei get killed and throws that spear, and he loves Daenerys who freed him from the slaves. And here's John just killed Daenerys, and Grey Worm's like, "Understandable, mate. Don't worry about it, bruv. I'm just going to go to Narf and die butterfly disease, like Steve said. Like, no." And everyone else just kind of goes, you've killed, you've killed the queen. You've killed Daenerys. But do you know what? Just go up, go up to the north and smile at the snow again, because that's all you're good at. It just was so... And, you go and, join the Night Watch, which isn't really a thing anymore. It's not the yeah. greatest punishment in the world, is it? No, it's not. Go up north. You love it up there, mate. You've got the hair for it. You yeah. Like, it, it, this happy ending, which George R.R. R. Martin has always told told us that the ending of game of thrones is going to be bittersweet yeah. and so i think you 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 expect the ending to be difficult to stomach and something that i really didn't like was that daenerys dies which is a shame because there's a part of me that would like to have seen the mad king in charge of the country and kind of end the series on what happens next you know she's on the throne and she's mad what do we do that would have been awesome um but you end the season she's dead brands the king and he can see everything including the lottery numbers and so he's loving it and you know if he can see everything then surely the whole of westeros is now saved anyway different debate and then the starks all get this like i said this high school kind of send-off like Arya's on a boat going bye guys and sans is now in charge of the north and everyone you know queen in the north because she's queen in the north now so the kingdom is actually split um brand's like on that. the throne he's getting wheeled around and John... why, why is that a thing why split the kingdom it doesn't actually achieve it if you, your brother's king of the other countries the other part of the country so yeah. it oh, that, was, that was weird wasn't it because they tried to give it the Sandra. whole ed robert thing didn't they yeah yeah and that's fine that's all well and good but again it just happens so quickly the whole tension between her and Jon Snow suddenly I don't like you because you're king in the north mm. like it was just so forced and Jon smiling at the snow and riding off the ending was like oh so everyone's happy now because the dragon's gone it just it felt so unfinished can we just imagine for a moment what it would have been had they have taken it upon themselves to do the full 10 episodes and not already been hanging out the back of a certain mouse? Um, we haven't even touched on the Night King either, have we? That's because that he's pointless. In the way they ended him, he becomes useless, so everyone forgets he even is a thing. They spend seven and a half seasons working him up to be this crazy person where in fact all he ever is is this person that doesn't want to become what he is spends his entire time trying to undo himself and then he finally is undone and that's it see you later but isn't that a nice metaphor for Daenerys <laughs> yeah it is <laughs> there was a rumour online that Game of Thrones was thematically about uh, climate change and um, obviously Night King represented climate change I thought it was preposterous but that's actually a better story than what we actually got, I think. Because at least that'd be at least in, at least something. It'd be, at least be something um, yeah. if that's the case. But, but then it's just we had well, eight seasons worth, and I think they went out in one episode, all the, uh, all the dead, the armies of the dead. 
not getting his mates. In the interest it's been of better balance. for them to have pushed them further down towards the capital and it to actually yeah. have been this yeah, coming yeah. together moment for didn't, Westeros. Didn't, didn't they cheat us? I think it was somewhere in season two they have a, uh, like, she has a premonition in the House of the Undying mm. and sees herself walking towards the Iron Throne and there's snow everywhere and yes, yeah. all that, you know. So you basically think, well, the finale, obviously that means in the finale. The Night King's going to be there in King's Landing, and then obviously it's nah, ah, that was ash from all the uh, smoke, from all the all the fire burning that the dragons caused. So I ah, got you there. If you come on, that was never on the plans. It was always in every, the interest of kicking off in, in King's, it, King's that Landing. That was winter coming. That is yeah. exactly what it exactly. was. Exactly. In the interest of balance, I mean, let let's. I'm gonna I'm gonna be fair now. I'm gonna I'm gonna say, well, maybe of course they realised that the Night King had been set up and then they thought, well, actually Daenerys is the villain here. But mm. again, if, if you take that school of thought and she's the villain, she is ultimately the bad guy of Game of Thrones. Oh, definitely. But even then, why set up the Night King to do all of this stuff? Oh, he's got a dragon now. Oh, he's broke down the wall because he blew a horn. And oh my goodness. And then, you know, the guys living two miles south of Winterfell must have been like, what the hell is going on over there? Thank God they haven't come over here. It was just... It felt like running at 200 miles an hour. And then that, just, oh, he's dead now. Great. And the episode, I couldn't tell you what happened because it was pitch fucking black. No, no. Yeah, it's like Arya scrambles around on a load of roofs. A load of people she loves die. And then she somehow manages to walk into the Godswood sort of Mm. unchallenged. And it just okay, becomes you, this really obvious moment. You get that. You get that scene for Theon, which was obviously a really, a really good scene. You know, you're a good man. I know. You get that sort of redemption story for him. Obviously, having messed up the Starks so much and inviting Ramsay Bolton to the door and what have you. So that was obviously nice to give him closure. But just you've set this guy up as the biggest problem Jon Snow like two episodes earlier is shouting at Cersei Lannister going he's the problems in the north and he's the real wars in the north no don't worry about it mate just get Arya to kill him and then don't worry it's just it just felt frustrating because you think to yourself okay well what was the point of the hard home episode then which was a fantastic episode because don't worry about it. What was the point of Craster's Keep? What was the point of the Fist of the First Men? What was the point of any of that? What was the point of Sam and the Dragon Glass? You know, if the story was always going to be Daenerys and John, we'll just make it about Daenerys and John. Imagine they'd have actually ended it as they did with the Night King, but then we'd gone to the full length of the season. Everyone had crawled back to their holes and plotted, and then we'd have had this big final battle for Westeros with out Daenerys going mad and all this stuff that everybody wanted. Not that it would have been fan service, but it would have been a proper ending to the Game of Thrones as opposed to them all sitting around and going, oh, bloke in the wheelchair seems pretty clever, doesn't he? <laughs> He's a tree. <laughs> no offence to him being in a wheelchair, but it's like, oh, Bran's... Brand knows loads of stuff because now we know he can see backwards and forwards and he does funny stuff with his mind. He's got to be king. Yeah. See, with, with me, I'm a professional wrestling guy, as you know, and uh, in professional wrestling um, jargon, 
the jobber is someone who constantly loses, but then you have someone who's higher up the card, who's not quite your main event, but somewhere above your mid-level guys called a jobber to the stars. And he's there to get people ready for the main events. I never once watching it got the impression that the Night King was ever a jobber to the stars. He was always to be the main event ahead of uh, everyone else, ahead of ahead of Cersei, ahead of the Targaryens, ahead of uh, Daenerys, ahead of everybody. I always got the impression he was to be the main event and the series was to end with a big old fracas with him. Yeah. And... Whew, do you think Ooh. there's a load of stuff they left on the cutting room floor that was that, and they knew they were having to wrap it up in a very quick way? Because fair enough, you have these times, you get set things, and you have project to project, um, and they lost their love for it. And do you think there's actually stuff out there that they shot and went, you know what, we've run out of money? Maybe. I mean, go you know, go back to my earlier point about how I think they kind of rushed Dar- Daenerys and kind of went for the cheap route. Again, such a simple change in the narrative of that final season is that you have Cersei send support against the Night King and you have Daenerys be the one who says no because she doesn't believe it. But Cersei does, because then you've got this character. I mean, that's my rewrite. Rewrite. That's something that yeah. I've just done now, and that's a better story. You have Cersei, this bad guy from episode one, say, actually, as Steve said, this this guy's a big deal. We need to go and fight him. Daenerys, the war's off for 10 minutes. We're going to go deal with the cold man. We'll come back to this in a minute. And have Daenerys be the one who says, no, I don't believe in that rubbish you're only doing this to distract me no so then you have all of westeros coming together fighting and pounding away and thousands of people dying against the night king and daenerys then just turns up at the end with her giant army dragons and just says right fight me now and then again just a better way of making a villain (laughs) there we go done i think that would have been great and i think also it would have been a really strong thing to do to have daenerys kill john yeah. yeah, because she realizes, oh God, he's actually the heir to the throne. Although none of that matters anymore because you've got dragons, love. Um, it would have been such a strong way to take the story. Mm. Just, but alas, think about it. You know, just, just think about the characterization that you've done for seven seasons, and then appreciate that you can't just turn somebody in one episode um which they were quite famous for in the end weren't they just kind of snip snip snapping obviously jamie i do remember when jamie sleeps with brienne doesn't he and i love you she says and he's just like yeah i love cersei mate bye and all of that hard work on jamie as a character just ruined ruined Because but they do that, don't they? They do this build-up of a character and make you want them to be this thing. Like They make us want Ned Stark to take over the kingdom the minute Robert dies, and then they just they just kill him, and that's that. And mm. with Jamie, they, they made him this amazing retributional character, if retributional is even a word, um, whether he has this huge turnaround, and then they drop him. And I think towards the end of the run so middle of season six onwards they were going for these big bang shocks weren't they just because they could do it 
like they get you to settle in and then they pull the plug and you go all oh, right okay here it goes um, what actually happened to their star wars films where what happened there because you don't hear anything about that anymore do you so no um that's it. That to me just said that was a waste because you know Disney probably looked at the end of Game of Thrones and went, "Now nah, you're right." I mean, I don't want to. I don't know. If we can even talk about this, so listeners, turn off for a minute. But I think it wouldn't surprise me if, if fan backlash to the end of Game of Thrones did kind of um, change opinions, perhaps on on how a Star Wars season could look. Because I'm a Star Wars fan. Um, I'm a casual compared to most people because some of the Star Wars fandom can get very angry if you even change so much as a nut or a bolt on a lightsaber. So had they have handled, you know, certain fan favorite characters in the same way as they handled, say, Daenerys or or Cersei or Jamie, for example, again, I, I don't think that would have gone down well either. No, I think they would have purposely pulled some stories apart for the sake of doing it because now they think they're these Hollywood big shots because they've gone and ridden George R. R. Martin's coattails into nothing. Then, through Do you think that's a fair assessment? Because I've heard it many times that, that the show deteriorated when they stopped pulling from George R. R. Martin's work directly. Do you think that's fair to say? I think yeah. it began to deteriorate then. And then when we got to about halfway through season five where i think george pulled his input back to focus more on writing book six and seven because apparently they're together and they're ready to go and he's just holding on to them until everyone stops hating it um i think the falling out gave them this all oh, right let's just finish it now we're done with it kind of thing mm. so the problems, uh, with these days is you know fan fandom they tend to hold a grudge in a way. It's like uh, Disney got a lot of uh, negativity from Last Jedi, which uh, yeah, they, 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 they claim was the reason for Solo bombing was because fans were boycotting it on purpose because they didn't like the way that uh, the Last Jedi ended. Fantastic. So, I think uh, that's that's a very poor excuse, isn't it? Because everyone was saying The Last of Us 2 wouldn't sell because everybody hated the leaks, but the, everyone that hated the leaks was the 0.0003% of people that bought it and made it the highest grossing PlayStation 4 game ever. Mm. So I think that's a very weak reasoning from Disney, isn't it? Yeah, but I, I think that's... I don't know. I, think, I, I know fans tend to hold grudges on things, and I think whatever uh, the writers of um, Game of Thrones do next, I think it's going to get shit on anyway. I think people are going to bury it outright because of, of how Game of, Friend, Game of Thrones ended. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think even though they have no involvement in it, this Targaryen sort of pre-series mm. Is, mm. Will, will not be well received because it's an HBO Game of Thrones show and they will associate it with Weiss and Benioff or whatever their silly names are. Yeah. Yeah, so. Can you it's tell I hate them? <laughs> it's it's it is interesting, isn't it? Because I think, in a way, it's good because you only hate something. I think if if you've got a genuine passion, you know. If if we were all sitting here saying that we watched it and it did nothing for us and we never thought about it again, the fact that we're still able to talk about it a year later on, so lucidly that, as well. 
yeah, that there was something that we connected with. And and there was, I think, you know, to, to try and move towards a conclusion, there was definitely something that all three of us and, and millions of people around the world really connected with as a TV show. Mm. Um, and if any of the cast and crew listened to this, which would be a serious honour, um, they did amazing work. It's always worth remembering that they did such fantastic work. And it's only the negatives we say the criticism we give and the criticism many other people give it's only because we love we loved it once and it's a shame that you know it, it didn't even kind of go the way of the hobbit films which i thoroughly enjoy but i know a lot of the fans of tolkien hated the hobbit films because they became very hollywood and very silly and over the top but there was still a love for the work behind it and you could still see that there was this passion for the story um but with game of thrones it became so obvious that they just wanted it to end and they just wanted it to be yeah. finished and they had to kill off Ferris and Littlefinger quickly because we just got to kill them off quickly. We've got to kill this person off. Are you looking at me funny? Die. Looking at me funny? Die. It just, they wanted it done and they wanted it finished with. And that really resonated, I think, with, with an audience that had fallen in love with the show, us included. Yeah, I mean, I would never want anyone to think, especially because if there's people out there that are as passionate as me, there's people out there 10,000 times more so, the the show and the series and the creation as a whole is my favourite thing to have come out of any medium of creativity and irrespective of all the things I've said I will never see another TV show that gave me the goosebumps Game of Thrones gave me even little things like watching Jamie Lannister gallop through water clouded fields as dragon fire bellows below him and above him you will never see that on television again partly because nobody will ever want to give the budget to anyone in the in the hopes that they cock it up as bad as they did this but it's always going to have this place in paving the way for television to become film just chopped up into smaller pieces and i think the the series as a whole is still a 10 out of 10 and if there was anything higher than that, it would have got it had it not have had the last two episodes. So shall we end this discussion with all going round the room and saying one moment in Game of Thrones that really sticks with us as, as inspirational to us in our own work or something that really resonates with us and just made us, as you say, Alex, goosebumps. Um, go on, Alex, you start. You, you said the goosebumps, you can start. Um, I don't know if it's goosebumps or not, but I think the scene that will always stick with me is the scene when John is out for his first sort of walk, not walk, like you know, his first time he's out ranging, <laughs> and they find he's out for like a little stroll with his mates in his Yeezys, and he bumps into Yeegrit and starts chirpsing her. But that moment where they have this her as a prisoner. And she's goading him and she is playing him along and giving him this, you can't do this. You're just a simple little crow. It gives you this sort of exposure to his frailness and inexperience as a man and a character and how we'll, we know we'll then see him grow. But it gives you this building of a great relationship. And you know from that moment that she's going to die because it's something Jon Snow loves. 
but at the same time you love it because you know that they're creating something special and the way that they use her as this few into the wildlings existence is it was incredible for me in the first moment she takes him over the top of the hill into Mance's camp you just think how have they done this on any medium let alone on a television show yeah so that's mine steve uh lord tywin's death the everything about it the whole you know uh you know jamie get jamie freed his brother and uh we go on there he kills he kills his um he kills shay off you know who he finds in his dad's bed which that alone is just so grim i absolutely love it that's just such a grim and it's so tywin isn't it it's so tawdry, tawdry basically. But yeah, it's so very tired when it's like, right, okay, I've just, um, you know, I'm killing, tomorrow I'm going to kill, I'm going to grab my son killed. And, uh, you know, on top of that, I'm going to screw his uh, prostitute lover. That's mm. just, anyway, but the whole thing there, you know, the crossbow and that, and he's having a dump while he's killing him. It's everything, that, that whole scene is just brilliant where, you know, you get that final last moment, Tyrion gets his win, and it's just, that's just perfect, I think. I don't think there's a better scene in the whole no. now. It's like Tyrion's coming of age almost, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it, well, well, I mean, it's, it's you know, he's obviously outgrown his parents and outgrown his uh, his upbringing and evolved into a man at that point, but which is a fairly standard trope within fiction. But the fact he's killing his own father to do that, that just, that's just I, I don't think there's anything better than me. That's the pinnacle of the show as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah, and for me... I think I'm going to go goosebumps. The the scene, Jamie's with with Bron, and Bron, do you hear that? And you just hear that quiet, really quiet kind of rumbling. Mm-hmm. And then it's you know form the line, and they form up that line, and there's that tense moment. You know what's coming because you've seen the previous scenes. You know what's coming, but of course, Jamie and and Bron and the Lannister soldiers, they don't have a clue. Yeah, and you know, you just hear rumbling. You hear the quiet noises from the Dothraki getting slowly louder and louder, and they form up that line that Dothraki, Dothraki coming over the hill, and then just the dragon coming, mm. which is something that we've sort of been building up to for that was it seven seasons? seven and a half seasons. We're seven waiting for this thing to emerge, point. aren't we? Yeah. yeah. You know, we, we've seen the dragon small, burning meat. We've seen the dragon slightly bigger in Marine, I think it was, blowing up the ships. But then here comes, um, it was Jogon, isn't it? Here he comes, just huge, colossal. And in that moment, because we're seeing it for the first time as viewers, seeing the dragon and the Dothraki in battle together, when Jamie pulls that face and when Bronn sort of, I think Disney says, like, you didn't pay me for a fucking dragon. You know, when you get that moment, you just you you feel it with them. You're with them in that moment, mm. and with the Lannister soldiers in that line of spears, thinking, "Fuck this noise! <laughs> I'm out. I'm, I'm finished." And obviously, they just annihilate them, just completely destroy them. Um, and for me, that was just one of those scenes, which, like I said, seven and a half seasons, you've been waiting for that scene, and you finally get it, and you think, "That's that's incredible. That's worth every episode." Oh, definitely. And I think that's one of the things as well that gives you, at least for me, something that I haven't touched on at all. I actually love the way Bronn interacts with both the Lannister brothers. Mm. And he has this great relationship with both of them, but at very different times and at very different periods in the story's development. And him as a character. And I think also we haven't mentioned at all 
someone who probably was everybody's favourite character from season one. We have not mentioned Jason Momoa's Carl Drogo once, and we've talked about the show that he probably brought to the forefront with his power as that character. I loved mm-hmm. it. I thought it was great. I don't think he was he was anything super special. I mean, I thought it was great. I just didn't think he was impactful enough on the season as compared to some of the other actors, of course, Jason Momoa was fantastic in that role, born to play it. But I just think in terms of the overall narrative, he then gets quite quickly eclipsed by by other people. And that's, again, no no, no knock on him, of course. That's more just the, the power that's, of... That, for me, is the strength of the first four seasons. They make yeah. you love these characters, you lose them, but then they always replace it with another love and another fan favourite. And like we've we've gone all this way without talking once about Jorah Mormont. <laughs> no, I did. All I mentioned the Simp Lord. Simp Lord. Oh yeah, but that, yeah, that was more of a slight as opposed to a <laughs> an actual accolade to the yeah, man. I mean, what a character! I think listener viewers, donators, Patreons, friends, lovers, I think you can tell that we could talk about this for hours or by ourselves. So together, that's at least two hours we could talk about this so i think we're going to have to wrap it up for now but it's a topic we can always come back to in the future i think we could as soon as we start getting wind of this new targaryen season we will be back um and drop us a comment send us an email if you want us to talk about your favorite character if you want us to talk about an episode if you want us to talk about anything in particular please you know we're going to be open to suggestions and we'll do that We've got episodes to fill. Yeah, Why just not? Tweet us anything you're interested in or anything that you think would create an interesting conversation or is an interesting story around it. We want to hear it. And that's not saying we're not going to come up with our own great stories for you guys anyway. We just want to be as much involved with the community as we possibly can. We want to share your stories through our medium and have even people that want to come and guest and speak about interesting stuff. Hit us up. We want you. Our segue game is just incredible today because that perfectly brings us onto our socials. So guys, where can the listener viewers find you when they're trying to look for you on the socials? So you can find me at, at algarnet 87 with two T's on everything. That's where I exist. Um, and where I chat nonsense about everything that we've just spoken about this evening. Steve. You can find me at Vi Steve Pearson on Twitter. That's T H Y because somebody beat me to the E. And uh, you can buy a copy of my book, Wrestling Noir Real in Memphis, at www.wrestlingnoir.com. That's www.wrestlingnoir.com. Once described as Game of Thrones with Pile Drivers, wasn't it? Very apt for today's episode. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Um, and me, you can follow me at Twitter at Stuart Green SG, on Instagram at Stu Green1989. And you can follow us on the pod on Twitter at right underscore tail on the Instagram at, at right good tail. And you can send us an email at a right good tail at outlook.com. Ladies, gentlemen, friends, white walkers, dragons, simp lords, um, simp lords, <laughs> Mormon, simp lords, um, wheelchair tree boys. Anyway, without us ruining the theme show, 